This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies edtech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com BE. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am Jethro Jones, your host, and I am excited to invite you to participate in the Transformative Leadership Summit happening August 1st through 14th. We are going to have a great list of amazing guests who will be presenting. Jerry Pascal, John Wenstrom, Bill Ziegler, Chris Weiger, Justin Bader, Will Parker, and a host of other amazing principals and leaders to help you be the best principal you can be. Go to transformativeleadershipsummit.com to sign up. Welcome to Transformative Principal. Today, I am super excited to have Rachel Yanoff on the show, and she is the Director of External Affairs at Phoenix Collegiate Academy. And I first came across her when my wife actually sent me an article and said she would be a great guest on your podcast. And the article was about this crazy lady who went out in the hot Phoenix summer and knocked on all these doors to get kids to come to a new charter school that she was opening. And she made a promise that she would get all those kids to college. And sure enough, that's what she did. So Rachel, thank you so much for being on the show today. And I know that I gave a very brief introduction, but thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about your experience opening this school. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks so much. So when you first started, this was just a dream that you had. Talk about how that process happened and why it happened and why you started the school. I think that the the dream got started when I actually left Alaska for the first time and headed to Georgetown University it was the first time that I had confronted the idea that there were kids in this country who had two options. One option was to go to not high-performing school or to pay for the option to go to a good school or a, a high-performing school. And a lot of those kids end up at Georgetown, the kids that pay for school. And I, I started to think about the fact that that meant that a lot of kids with lots of potential didn't end up at a school like Georgetown because they didn't have the money to pay for school from kindergarten through 12th grade. And how lucky I was that I got to be in a public school system that prepared me for that. But what did that mean for the ramifications for everybody else? And then sort of as I'm having this somewhat existential crisis, um, a a recruiter for Teach for America was on my campus. And the mission of Teach for America of serving a couple of years in a low-income community as a teacher to really learn internally what's happening for low-income communities to prevent them from finding the success in schools that we would hope our country could see, really appealed and sort of fed that that part of me that was wondering. And so I came out to South Phoenix as a teacher in the Teach for America program. My, you know, my intention at that point was just to teach for two years, and I was going to learn a lot. But really, ultimately, I was going to go make a million dollars on Wall Street when this is all done. Um, 
that kind of was like my my way to feel good about myself uh, for a couple of years and you know to get a job because my parents felt pretty pretty strongly that that was important. But once I got here and once I met my students and I met their parents, it was pretty obvious immediately that these kids and these parents want the same things that every kid and every parent wants, that they want their students to thrive and to have opportunities and for their lives to be better than the generation prior. And these families trusted that school was the place to do that. And the difference between the families that I served and my own upbringing was that these parents didn't have the knowledge or the ability to sort of push the system to be better. And so they were literally just handing over the most important thing that they had in, in their children and trusting that the system that they were going into was going to fulfill this you know, promise that we make to, just to families that school is a place where your kid will get better, where your, where your opportunities will, will increase. Um, and that just wasn't true in the, in the environment that I was in. There was a lot of systemic problems with principals turning over and superintendents turnover, and it, it was just really clear that the system itself wasn't created to to make the difference for students that needed to be made. And so at the time, my, my intention was, well, you know, I, I, can, I can fix this. I'll just be a principal in this system, and I'll just be that person who sticks around and who makes a difference. Um, and probably really smartly, they looked at me and said, well, you're probably a little young, um, and I was. I, I thought I could do anything at 24. But I don't take the answer no very well, and so I, I looked for how, how could I make this thing real um, without having to, to wait for the district to sort of accept me as an opportunity. And so the nice thing about Arizona is there's lots of charter schools and charter schools are well accepted. And so I looked to found a school that would really fit all of the things that I was believed in, which was that, you know, community mattered and that we needed to commit long term and that it needed to be the whole seamless path. And so I, I found a program that would train me on how to start a school because I didn't know how to do that and did that program for a year and then spent a year knocking on doors and finding a building and convincing people that we could change the status quo um, if we just believed in it. Well, that is pretty exciting. And there's a ton of information there that we probably won't get to all of it. But (laughs) what was your original, your degree in college going to be finance, I imagine? Uh, My degree was economics and history. Okay, fascinating. So a lot of times Teach for America gets kind of a bad rap because Mm -hmm. bring in really ambitious, excited people and that for two years and then they leave and and don't give back. For you though, you came in and you saw an opportunity for yourself to make a change and make things better for students. And that is really awesome and commendable. And I appreciate you doing that because it's easy to say, I can go make millions of dollars on Wall Street and be happy. So good for you. What is the program that you went through to learn how to start a school? It's called Building Excellent Schools. It's based out of Boston, but it's got a really intense niche. It's for people who want to start urban, high-performing charter schools that serve low-income students with a mission to prepare kids for college. I mean, really, like, really specific niche. So I was in a cohort of 12 people across the whole nation. That's awesome. That sounds like a great program to be part of. And, you know, one of the things that charter schools sometimes get an issue with is that they are skimming off the top Mm -hmm. and taking some of the best kids. And it doesn't sound like that's the case at your school. What are the demographics of the kids that you're working with? Sure, sure. So I think first, though, I mean, 
my, my beef is always, I think that we do have the best kids <laughs> no matter what, but yeah, our, our demographic on numbers is that 97% of the students that go to Phoenix Collegiate Academy are receiving free or reduced lunch, Title I, whichever term you prefer. 88% of our students are Latino. It fluctuates between 6 and 8% depending on the year of our students are African American, and then the other is generally Caucasian. So, And then our, our numbers are mirroring or a little higher than the district that we're sort of surrounded by as far as special education. So we're at about 14% of our population are students who receive special education services. And then about, depending on the, the age range, because it, it does vary elementary, middle to high school, but about, you know, anywhere between 50% at the sort of elementary school level to 10% of our students are English language learners. So thank you for correcting me on the best <laughs> kids. That was inappropriate of me to say, and I appreciate no, you no. clarifying. It, it's fine. Don't worry. <laughs> I can be corrected. But... Uh, um, what I meant to say was those students who are charter schools, sometimes those have those that are most likely to go to college because they have supportive parents and have parents who care enough to pull them out of a struggling school and put them in a school that is more successful. Talk about how you talk to parents to get them to bring their kids to your school and why that mattered and how that happened. I mean, so the first way, the first thing we do is we find our families through a lot of, you know, like you said, knocking on doors in the extreme heat, standing outside of grocery stores, going to parks. Uh, we're kind of those creepy people who do walk up to birthday parties and start talking to people. But generally, a conversation just starts with the question of, you know, do you know that you have options? A lot of families don't understand that charter schools are an option or that there's just even choice in general in schooling. There's a lot of misconception that you have to go to the school down the block, and if you don't, that, that you might get in trouble or that there's something wrong. So we just want to educate families, even if they don't choose to come to us. I think that's fine. I just want them to know that they have choices. But then we do talk about, and we, and we start our conversation with families about just what is it you want for your child, because... Every parent has dreams for their child, and it's an easy way to get them to start talking, but it's also a way for us to find out if they feel like those dreams are being met. And so we talk, we ask them questions about what they want for their kids. We ask them questions about what they're receiving, and, you know, and, and sometimes we find out that what they're getting is great, and we affirm that, and we want them to stay where they are if they're happy. Uh, and sometimes we find out that they're not as, as satisfied, or they're, they've been wondering. I mean, we get this question a lot, like, I, I keep thinking that my child should have homework in seventh grade, but they never have. Is that normal? And parents have questions, and we want we want to help them with, with answering those, or at least give some other opinions. We do find a lot of families who come to us because they feel like the school system that they're in just isn't giving their kid the attention that they want. You know, that's certainly their perception. That's not to cast stones and say that that's necessarily true. But I think families appreciate the fact that we go out of our way to find them and that what we do is over-communicate. And so families feel really comfortable that their kid is not going to be looked over or anonymous because of the nature of how we even find them in the first place. Yeah, it'd be pretty hard to spend all that time going and finding somebody and then never talking to that family again. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sort of be strange. Yeah. So do you speak Spanish if most of your students are Latino? Yeah, I wish. It would make my job a lot easier, and I do not. So it has been an interesting ride to figure out how I can communicate with families. I've always been lucky that since I started 
working on this school, my former students that I taught when I was a teacher, they have actually been really excited and supportive and said they would come with me and they would help translate and just sort of add some validity to the fact that this crazy blonde lady wasn't just a crazy blonde lady. You know, it helps when they can say, this is my teacher and she cares about me and look, four years later, she still knows me. So that's always been really helpful. And then I'm, I'm lucky that most people around here have a pretty strong sense of Spanglish. So together we can somewhat piece together a conversation. It, I mean, it would be a huge advantage if my Spanish was better. It's just not. <laughs> well, and that's, that's cool too, that it, that not speaking the language doesn't prohibit you from being able to still communicate with these families and make a, a positive experience for their kids. And, you know, we sometimes think that we need to speak perfectly for something to work and that's just not the case. So it's, it's actually better for your story that you don't speak Spanish. So <laughs> good job. Well, I think, yeah, I think it is one of those things where if I had waited for everything to be, quote unquote, perfect, then PCA would never have started. So if I had waited for my Spanish to be excellent before I embarked upon this, I probably would have been too many years down the road and then life would have happened, right? So it was one of the blocks, roadblocks, but I think it was helpful that we didn't let it be something that stopped us. And I am lucky that a lot of the people who initially came onto the team were able to speak Spanish. So there was a very short period of time where it was just myself and some former students. It was pretty quickly that I had wonderful people to work with who their Spanish makes makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And uh, what grade and subject did you teach uh, when you did Teach for America? I taught eighth grade history for four years. So two years in my Teach for America core placement, but then I decided to stay on for two more years and continue teaching. Okay. Awesome. So one of the things that you said was that you over-communicate with the parents. What does that look like at your school? One of the things that we really fundamentally believe is that it's going to take all parties for this work to, to happen. And that doesn't mean that we think parents have to be even as, as educated as their students are. And it doesn't mean that we think parents have to come in and spend a certain amount of hours at the school just for the sake of being here. But what we do think it means is that parents need to be equipped with all of the tools to be a really active participant. So first and foremost, you know, like I said, initially when we meet families, it's a lot of personal touch, right? We we meet them somewhere, we go to their house, we, we follow up with them. There's a lot of reaching out that we do before they even show up. We require families to come to a mandatory parent orientation. You know, if they don't come, we go to them. And so families learn really fast that we're not trying to punish them, but if you can't make it to something, then we are going to make the effort to come to your house because it's that important that you're part of our team. And so that orientation is where we can, you know, talk about rules, talk about systems, talk about structures, talk about what we need them to do to be a part of this team. And also just a nice time to celebrate and build that sense of community of look around, there's other families and they're all doing this with you. And I think that that's important because I do think good, bad or otherwise, no matter how functioning a school is, it is the hub of a community still. It sort of still seems to be the structure in America. And I think the more we can capitalize on that, the better. So, so that we also require families to sign homework every night. You know, again, our families don't necessarily always understand what the homework is, but just that active participation of, I saw that my kid did this and I'm affirming that I know they either completed it or didn't complete it, that they tried. It just, it, again, it, it involves them in the process, right? They know now what their kid is doing. It's not like we have a secret of, we know what's happening in school, but you don't. And I think that that helps parents be empowered. 
weekly we send home what we call the pride report, which pride is our core values. So perseverance, respect, integrity, discipline, and excellence. But the pride report really is a neat thing that we've created. And well, we, we didn't create it. We borrowed it from some other school, modified it to be our own. But it's a report that really helps parents understand how their students are doing holistically. We do have to make things more numerical than they might be in real life. But we sort of have a numerical system of tracking positive and negative consequences that your student received in the week. We track and sort of report out on amount of homework completed, amount of homework that was partially complete, uh, amount of homework that was just never turned in. So parents can really see if there's a disconnect between what they're seeing at home and what actually gets turned in. It's also a place where teachers every week when this report comes out, they write a paragraph of comments to the families. So it's an ongoing conversation uh, that just helps parents see the whole picture. It also includes grades, but as a parent, you probably experienced this, and, and I certainly felt this as a teacher, that it really wasn't helpful to send home a progress report to parents that just said, your student has a 70% in my class. There's a billion questions that come from that, right? Like, is that because they're not doing their homework? Is that because they're doing their homework, but it's not getting turned in? Is that because they're failing tests? Even though they don't do the homework, they somehow fail under pressure uh, of a test. Is that because they're talking all the time to their neighbor? And, And a simple fix would be stop that. And I think this report gives parents such a large amount of tool, uh, toolbox, right? To, to actually talk to their kid and say, Hey, let's, let's figure this out together and to have that iterative conversation with their teacher every week of, they're seeing this, they're commenting on this, this gives me a chance to have a conversation. So those are some formal structures. We actually also require parents to come in every quarter for conferences. A lot of school systems that I've been a part of only require that twice a year. We just feel like this is your child and waiting for 18 weeks to find out if they're not doing well seems like a really foolish decision on, on everyone's part. So again, we, we literally will not stop until we have 100% participation in conferences. So if you can't come to us, which we've had families where parents have been sick or you know someone has had a transportation issue, we show up to their house because again, this is, a, this is only going to work if we're on it on the team together. Um, and then beyond and above that, we make phone calls. I would say that teachers call students and parents at least every day. You know, sometimes it's I need, to, I need to talk to you about what's going on with the student because they're not performing the way I want. And a lot of times it's just, hey, I want to tell you about the great thing your kiddo did today. We really encourage our teachers to reach out to families and tell them the good stuff too because it, it makes a better relationship, for certainly. But it also, it also reminds our families that we're seeing your kids when they win and we, and we want you to help us celebrate that. Well, that's pretty awesome. Sounds like you've got a lot of really good stuff going. When you think about that homework being assigned every night, what does that homework look like? Is that traditional homework that do take the math book and do the odd number, odd problems on page 75? Or does homework look different at your school also? It really depends on the on the teacher in the class. We've we've tried a lot of cool things. In our high school, we're trying more and more to go to the flipped model of students basically doing the lesson at home and then coming into school and doing what would traditionally be thought of as the homework or the the practice. That takes it takes a level of sophistication that we're still trying to figure out. Uh, a lot of our families don't have access to internet when they get home, so we can't rely on YouTube videos or um, sort of online sources. And I think a lot of that flip model does require that. So we're, again, we're working on it. But it is proving to be somewhat successful. We see that our kids, it's neat to have the time that they're in the building with us be the time where they are learning how to struggle, make mistakes, 
fail and then pick themselves back up again, which I think is actually what we like to think about homework being, right, is that practice time. So that is, at, that is what it looks like at the high school level, not, not unilaterally, but it's a, it's a process we're moving toward and we're pretty excited about. But at the middle school and elementary school levels, the homework is a, is a lot of practice. It's not necessarily textbook, do the odd problems, but practice, yes, definitely, definitely practicing of math, practicing of writing. We require students to, to read a, a book of their choice for 30 minutes every night at home, and their parents sign off that that's happening. They write a little reflection on it because we know that literacy is the key to everything, and the reality is that for most low-income kiddos, they're coming in with a pretty gigantic literacy gap that only, a, only will be fixed with a significant amount of reading. And then at the elementary level, I would say that a lot more of the homework is around communication since we have so many students who are English language learners. And so we are practicing talking to someone, practicing having a conversation. But again, we try to be thoughtful of the fact that a lot of our families are working two or three jobs. And so there's not always someone at home who can be that partner. And we don't want families to feel punished because of the realities of their life. That was a really great first part of my interview with Rachel Yanoff. I really enjoy talking to her. Next week, we are going to talk about what she does for getting all of her students on course, including having students take AP classes as freshmen to help get them ready for college. So very exciting. We're going to talk about some of the assessments that she gives and Saturday school and how to do all this stuff with not a ton of money. So really good conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it. And if you haven't yet, please go to transformativeleadershipsummit.com and sign up to be part of that wonderful experience where you can get some awesome professional development and attend a virtual conference right in your own home. Very cool. Transformative Principal is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators by educators. Visit edupodcastnetwork.com for more great podcasts. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash BE.